Psalm 81. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, why I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there should be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down for, to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I will soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, y'all. Everyone doing good? I'm in. Glad you're here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Romans 1. I'm Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm super stoked you're with us. We are in the middle of 21 days of fasting and prayer that's leading us up to Easter Sunday, uh, where I've asked you, if you're a part of this community, to spend some intentional time praying and fasting for this church and its impact on the community around us. Last week, um, we explored what fasting is exactly, and we said it's not just fasting from food, but from any good thing, if you remember, and because it's good things uh, that can and often do take the place of God in our lives. That's what we said. So we talked about food, sex, desire for security, desire for pleasure, desire for leisure, all really, really good God-given things, but left to themselves can grow out of healthy God-given boundaries um, and end up wreaking havoc on our lives. And we all probably know that from experience. Our appetites uh, turn from slaves into slave drivers. Our appetites, your appetite was made to serve you. And when we let those appetites loose, they turn from servants to slave drivers over our lives. We talked about seasons last week, changing around us, how spring is coming over the horizon, and how repentance and confession is the door that welcomes God's new life into the landscape of your life. Um, just like new life is flooding into the landscape around us. Um, so this season, what I've been asking you to do is be honest which I know we're in church, I know it's tough for some of us, about areas of imbalance and sin in your life. I've been inviting you to look it in the face, to stop running from your character flaws, to stop brushing them under the religious rug, to stop tolerating dysfunction and unhealthy habits that we so often settle into, and to deal with the appetites in your life that you have a suspicion may be growing out of God, healthy God-given boundaries and pull them into the light before God and others, confession and repentance. So for many of us, we're like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm fine. Doesn't sound very fun. Uh, you know, but just consider this for a second, then we'll get into what we're going to talk about today. I think most people, most of you in this room would say, I have a deep, deep desire in my heart to be fully loved. Fair assumption. Most people would say that. I long to be accepted. I long to be deeply appreciated. I long to be loved. But here's the reality. You cannot ever be fully loved if you are not fully known. It is, it is an impossibility. You cannot be fully loved unless you are fully known. So you can complain all you want about the relationships in your life not meeting your expectations, but until you are fully known yourself, 
Until you are offering the real you, until you are being honest, no relationship can flourish. You cannot be fully loved unless you're fully known. And of course, we have all sorts of objections to honesty and vulnerability like this. Others may reject you. You might get hurt. Yes, that's a potential risk. But you have to ask yourself, would I rather risk being fully known so that I can be fully loved, or would I rather live a lie for the rest of my life? And that's the choice before us. And I'd like to just take it a step further a little bit. You will not be able to risk to be fully known by others until you risk being fully known by God. Because, y'all... It's only the love of God that secures us in a way that we can risk like that. Outside of his affections, you are, your value is left in the perspective of others. Dude, you can't risk being known. Are you kidding me? But dude, if you're loved by God, like if the creator of the universe has accepted you into his good graces because of Jesus, dude, that new life, that new healing... Man, you can, you can take all sorts of risks. You can get up here like this idiot up here on the stage. Start preaching, right? Take all sorts of risks when you feel and know that you're loved deeply by, by the creator of the universe. And you know the way, the only way that you can begin to know that in your, in, in your life? Starts a little thing called prayer. The possibility of being fully known and fully loved by God can only be realized in honest conversation before God. If you think about it, it's kind of what it means to be in a relationship with him. Like you talk to him, right? So I want to talk to you today. I want to narrow in our focus today on prayer. I'm asking you to spend intentional time in prayer. Am I not? Okay, what's prayer? Most people, prayer is what you do when you're up the creek without a paddle or what you do before dinner, right? If you look at the Bible as a whole, they seem to have a very different category for prayer than, you know, you know, like I call it flare prayer. You know, like when you know you're going down, you know, over there. They seem to have a different category. And also from this, like we, you know, I lay me down to sleep. You know, they, hell Mary. They seem to have a different category for prayer than, than just those things. So I want to look at how prayer functions in the Bible. But to do that, if, if we're going to look at how prayer functions in the Bible, we have to lay some groundwork. Okay? So if you're a Christian, this is probably going to be easy and maybe enjoyable. If you're not a Christian, there's going to be some challenging things in here for you. Because the groundwork for understanding prayer is the fundamental assumptions the Bible makes about the universe we find ourselves in. That's the groundwork. we got to sit with the fundamental assumptions the Bible makes about the universe if we're going to understand prayer. Primarily, whose is it and what's gone wrong with it? Whose is the universe and what's going on? This, y'all, this frames prayer. So what are the fundamental assumptions the Bible makes about the universe? Hang with me for a bit. We'll get into it, okay? Uh, one of the most basic, primary, and, and first fundamental assumptions the Bible makes about the universe is that it is good. Created right and beautiful. Genesis 1 through 3. The Genesis narrative... In the Genesis narrative, if you've read it, what's the thing that gives life to everything? What's the thing that animates creation? What does God mix to make humans? Do you remember? It's a little bit of earth and a little bit of heaven. It's a little bit of clay and a little bit of his breath. So the Bible claims all the earth, everything in it, is not simply made by God, but sustained by the breath of God. That's the thing 
that animates all creation. So later the psalmist is going to say, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your breath, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. So the biblical paradigm is that the breath of God is kind of on loan to you. And that it's his breath that enables life in the first place. It's what the New Testament authors are getting at when they say Jesus holds all things together, right? They are saying that God is the power that sustains, that creates and sustains all creation as an act of pure creative generosity. So some of you, if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, sure. If you're not a Christian, you're like, yeah, I don't know. But this is the claim of the Bible, that all of creation is brimming over with God's good creative generosity, right? And that today, despite all the evils of men, the sun still shines, the rain still falls, the ground still produces food. And the Bible's going to say, do you know why? It's because God is still breathing his life on it all. The generosity and abundance of God is represented in Genesis as a garden, a garden, It's overflowing with abundance and goodness. Good fruit trees, right? Good to taste. Oh, also, they're beautiful to look at. And God says, have your fill. Have your fill. Take everything. Eat everything, every tree for you. Oh, except one. He says, there's one tree that you can't take. Do you remember the name of that tree? The name of that tree was the tree... Stay with me. Turn your brains on. I know we're at church. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You guys said that with me. That was remarkable. <laughs> now, now, now think about it. You said it. Now think about it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, that knowledge, don't eat of that. It's fascinating, isn't it? Don't take of that one. So here's everything. It's good. Everything. Now, now, trust me to what brings life and what kills life. And that choice is represented by abundance and generosity. And he says, there's one, though, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what happens in the story? We know Adam and Eve took the fruit for themselves. They, they ate of what? The knowledge of good and evil. They took it for themselves. And they unleashed evil and death and pain and toil. Genesis portrays that all of suffering, hang with me, is a consequence of humanity defining for themselves what is good and what is evil. Dude, that's what it means. It's not just some arbitrary tangerine you can't eat from, right? We... we, we uh, belittle the story and think, oh, come on, don't eat from one apple tree. Gee, oh, God, get, you know. Dude, he's trying to tell you something about, about who God is. God knows what gives you life. He's the only one worthy to run your life. I know that's so insulting, so many of us. And he says, if you will trust me as to what brings life, trust me as to what is good and what is bad, dude, you will live. But if you take that knowledge for yourself, if you think, I know what's good, and I know what's bad, and I'll run my life according to how I see fit, dude, that's the Genesis narrative. That all suffering, all the history of humanity, 
with all the war and all the violence and the genocide and the exploitation and the raping and the horrible evils that men have contrived. He said, that's due to one thing. Men have decided that they know what's right and what's wrong. And the history of the world unfolds as we know it. Y'all, it's not some arbitrary fruit we're getting after here. God is saying, trust me as to what brings life. And when we refuse that that wisdom of God, when we think, I know what's right, I, when we spurn counsel, right? Some of us just can't be told what to do. Just, we'd rather die. Someone else tells us to turn left at this light, right? <laughs> right? When we refuse these things, when we refuse just like common sense wisdom, universal laws like, I don't know, gravity, you know, stuff like that, pain and suffering enter. There's a physical overlap and there's a spiritual overlap, isn't there? Like if you think... You can stick your head under the water, the water and just take a big breath in. You will meet the limitations of your nature, won't you? It's the same spiritually, guys. You are made with natural limitations. And when you push up against those thinking that you know better, dude, it's as dumb as uh, trying to dry your hair while you're still taking a bath or playing roller derby without knee pads, ladies. Or guys, eating two Krispy Kreme dozen donuts just to see if you can. The story of the Bible is that humanity has chosen our own definitions of right and wrong, and the history of the world has unfolded. But as you read the Bible, what you begin to see is that God, creator God, is he never abandons his people. Never. Dude, when you read the Bible, he's always there, always inviting, always offering. What is he offering? Oh, dude. He's offering his breath again. And it culminates in the, the story of the Bible at Pentecost, where he gives his breath again on his people. Remember, Jesus breathes on them. Oh, the Bible, y'all. So good. Always there. And Jesus comes and offers to reverse. This is what the claim of the cross, is that he, in some way, by his life, death, and resurrection, is reversing the consequences that creation has brought on itself by deciding for itself what's good and wrong. So why talk about all this before we talk about prayer? Well, because, well, <laughs> because I, I entertain myself. Um, because it's really important for us to remember that what I just described to you, that chaos and mess and consequences and, and all that, that stuff, that chain of events, that's the context of prayer. That's where it happens, you see? This is where we pray. We pray in the chaos. We pray in a universe that seems to be on the verge of decreation. Anybody? We pray in a universe that's churning and writhing in the consequences of sin. Christians love to close their eyes to this and think prayer's all about my experience and having a great... Dude, okay, it's a great experience. I get that. I like, I like that. But the context of prayer is in a universe that's on the verge of falling apart. And when we forget that, our prayers turn inward and selfish, and we pray for all the things that we want, and Jesus, give me a, rock, a sports car, and whatever it is, right? Turn Jesus into your little butler. Dude, the context of prayer is in a universe that's falling apart under the consequences of sin. This frames what we're getting after. We tracking? When we look at the Bible, it's exactly in that context, in the context of catastrophe, consequences of our own sins barreling down on us that prayer happens. And over and over and over again, the story of the Bible is that God seems to be looking for someone who will trust him as to what brings life 
who will live right by him and by others, and who will stand as a representative for the people. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. Is God looking for someone who will stand as a representative for the people, like Abraham, or Moses, or this little thing called the priesthood, and Aaron. All these guys are examples of God inviting his people to step in the gap of the mess and the chaos of creation and ask him to interfere with the mess we've made of the world. Moses, let me give you a quick example. Here we go. We're going fast. Moses, first, sent to rescue. You remember Moses? You guys grew up in church, felt bored. Moses, Pharaoh, let my people go. Okay, that guy. Um, remember, after they come out of the Exodus, got the middle schooler on that one, um, the, they make a golden calf. Remember that? And they uh, rebel against, like, the marriage covenants, like, right after, the, on the honeymoon is the story, basically. They're on the honeymoon, and they commit adultery on the honeymoon. And Moses, God's like, Mo, step aside. I'm going to fry these jokers. I'm going to start over with you. That's, that's, the, that's my translation. I think the message says it that way. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't. It doesn't. Some of you are like, what's the message? Don't worry about it. Um, Moses, in Ex go read it, Moses, Exodus 32, Exodus 32, uh, he says, I I'm going to start over with you, Mo, and, and, and Moses says this, oh, well, I know, I'll tell you what God said, you can go read what Moses said, after Moses intercedes for the people, he reminds God, <laughs> it's so fascinating, he reminds God, you brought them out of Egypt, and, and he intercedes, he represents the people before God, and he asks God on the nature of God's defined character, which was kindness, slow to anger, abounding in love. He, he asks God in accordance with who God is, change your mind. <sighs> so weird. And God changes his mind by staying the same to who he is. <laughs> That's so weird. Exodus 32, 14, the Lord, your translation might say, change his mind. It might say, repented. The Lord repented. Your transition might say, relented. It's all the same. God changes his mind from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people who had just broken the marriage vows on the honeymoon. Interesting. Abraham intercedes on, a little, on behalf of his uh, cousin Lot in a little city called Sodom and Gomorrah. The violent city is destroyed. And do you remember the conversation that happens in Genesis 19? Abraham says to God, hey, 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 listen, um, my, my cousin's down there. Aren't you a just God? Aren't you just? Will you destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people? Remember the story? And God says, no, no, I won't do that. What about, Lord, 40? 30? Remember? Oh, God, don't be upset. 20? Maybe? Would you just, aren't you just? The flood was kind of confusing. A lot of people, you know, aren't you just? What about 10 people, Lord? Will you destroy the city? No, not 10. And then God sends an angel to rescue Lot. Do you remember the story? What, what's that role that Abraham was in? Man, yeah, representing his cousin on his righteousness. So fascinating, y'all. The Noah, the Noah narrative, the Abraham narrative, the Mo, these people get lopped in with a righteous person. Noah's family gets to live because of 
Noah's righteousness. Lot gets to live because of Abraham's righteousness. Man, what's going on in the Bible? <laughs> what about Jeremiah? Remember, have you ever read the book of Jeremiah? It's a fascinating read. Uh, in Jeremiah, we see the people disobeying God, doing business with foreign powers, putting their hope in other nations um, to protect them. That's the context of Jeremiah. Uh, Egypt's going to protect us. And then the foreign power, not Egypt, but the other one, comes and burns the city, okay, and takes uh, his people into exile, Nebuchadnezzar. The whole time in Jeremiah, the prophet is extending invitation, trust God and live, asking God to intervene. He's asking God the whole time that he'd inject himself, this is crazy, Jeremiah is asking God, inject yourself into the gears of our disobedience and stop the coming storm caused by their own rebellion. Fascinating. You might say, you, you might have read the Bible. You might say, yeah, but all those things, Chris, were God's wrath. Got you there. <laughs> so that does kind of complicate it, doesn't it? Because what are they doing? They're asking God not to punish in his anger, which that's true. Y'all, I know it's, this is difficult for us. God gets angry at violence and evil and wickedness and injustice. Now, it's okay for you to get angry at that stuff, but when God gets angry at that, we're like, who do you think you are? God does get angry. In fact, um, the Bible talks about his heart being roused to jealousy when his kids are tricked to choose death over life. That he gets jealous in his heart. He does reveal his wrath against evil, or he wouldn't be just, would he? So Romans 1 shed some really interesting light on the wrath of God. Do you have your Bible open to it? I mentioned it at the very beginning. If not, it's okay. The section title, some of you have a section title about in the middle, after about 18, um, of Romans 1. Anyone want to tell me what the title says right before 18? Thank you. Yeah, so the title, this whole second half of chapter of Romans 1 is about what? The wrath of God. Everyone ready? Too excited you came to church today. You're like, Chris, dang it, brought a friend today. All right, here we go. You're going to love this, man. All right, here, let's read it. So, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A lot of fantastic dynamics going on in there. Sit with that sentence for a week. All right, and then it goes down. And in 24, 26, and 28, three times, it's describing to us the nature of the wrath of God. Let's read it. 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women. Okay, 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Fascinating. This whole chapter on the wrath of God, three times when it's describing what the wrath of God is like, says God gave them up. What's that mean? He is connecting the wrath of God as God withdrawing himself from creation. He's, he's explaining the wrath of God as God taking his breath out and saying, you want to make those choices? I will give you to your choices. That is fascinating. Well, that's just Romans. Well, Judges 2.14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against all Israel, and he gave them over. 
to plunderers. Psalms 81, referring to Israel at the Exodus. Um, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. What's that mean? To establish, to define for themselves what's right and wrong. Acts 7, 42. But God turned away and gave them over. Dude. So there's this connection in between the wrath of God and God leaving us to our own devices. There's a connection between the wrath of God and God pulling his restraints out and saying, you got, just go ahead and devour each other because that's where this machine is headed. The wrath of God is seen as God not acting. See? And just giving the people what they want to the consequences of their actions. He gave them up to the lust of their heart. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. Fascinating, man. The wrath of God sometimes connected to God basically just not doing anything, withdrawing himself from the mess. Not every time. Sometimes God rightly reveals his wrath against injustice and violence and evil and steps in to make things right again, right? But almost every time he does, when he reveals his wrath in that kind of active stance, almost, an, almost the verse after, he extends mercy and invitation. Dude. So Psalms 89, I will punish their transgressions. I will. With the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from Israel my steadfast love. And that's a pattern you're going to see over and over in the Bible. God's wrath revealed and he says, but I'm going to save a remnant. God's wrath revealed and he says, but if you turn now and come to me, you will live always paired with invitation and mercy. And you know what the interesting thing is about how God extends that invitation for mercy in the Bible? It's always through a person. It's always through a person. Moses, Abraham, Noah, all, Jesus, like almost a priest. You guys know what the priests do? It's almost like God's always looking for someone who will extend what he really wants to give his people, which is Mercy and love, according to the Bible. Like in Hosea, Hi, Isaiah, sorry. Who will go for me, asks God. God seems to be looking for someone who will step in on behalf of the wicked and ask for mercy, which apparently he delights to give. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoing and passes over a rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Isaiah 54, in a little wrath, in a little wrath, what did he do? What did he do? What was his wrath? He hid his face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy. Dude, little wrath, everlasting kindness. This is the paradigm of the Bible. Gosh, the song of God is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. So what is prayer? Dude, what is prayer? Man, it's asking God to not give us over to the darkness that we've brought on ourselves. Dude, that's prayer. It's asking God, Father, intervene in the mess. 
It's asking him to step into the way of the consequences that we've brought on ourselves. It's asking him, Lord, don't give up on us. Don't take our breath away. It's stepping in the gap like in Joel 2, when the priests weep between the porch and the altar and ask him, spare your people. It's following the example of Aaron, the high priest, who ran and made a sacrifice between the living and the dead to stop the plague. Number 16, prayer is asking God to stop the tide of the consequences of our own sin. It's asking him to intervene in the mess. Or you could say it this way, prayer is beseeching God in accordance with who he is. And who is he? Who is he? When Moses learns the name of God, what does God say? He says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Y'all, he is the God of forgiveness. Yes and amen, but he's also the God of justice. He's the God of mercy and righteousness, y'all. He is the God of love and compassion and invitation and holiness who punishes the wicked and injustice but longs to give mercy. This is the tension of the God of the Bible. And that God is looking for someone who will be his vessel of mercy, someone who will offer themselves as a conduit for his mercy and kindness to be made known. Y'all, prayer is stepping into that role. Whose role is that? It's the role of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why do you think the church is called the body of Christ, bro? He's inviting you into that role to intercede for others, to get in the way of the consequences. Isaiah 59 sums up the entire Bible. Y'all, stay with me, stay with me. Isaiah 59 sums up the entire Bible in this. You ready? Sum up the entire Bible. Here we go. God looked and he saw that there was no one and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Moses, Abraham, Aaron, man, they, they helped see the role, but they all had their own moral failures. They all, they all couldn't fully do it. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him, and he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in passion as a cloak. Dude, the cross is where the God's justice and mercy meets like never before. In the cross, he let all the darkness of the sin of humanity descend on his son. And all the wickedness and the rebellion that we wrought, all the chaos and the consequences that we let loose because of our own pride, he let loose on his son. All the weight of the moral law that would have crushed us, and it's crushing some of us today, he allowed to crush his son in our place so that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Dude, the gospel, y'all, is that God did intervene, that he did not leave us alone. Jesus, y'all, brought the kingdom. Yes, it's finished, but we still live here, don't we? We live here with the fragrance of heaven in our nose and the stench of death as well. We taste eternity in Jesus, but live amongst the temporal. He has intervened in Christ and now makes that intervention real to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is asking God to, in our lives here and now, by the power of his Holy Spirit, intervene, to interfere in the mess, literally to mess things up. 
interfere. Interfere with my life, God. Interfere with my church. Insert yourself in the story of our chaos. Like, God, my buddy's life is crashing and burning. Interfere, Lord. Like, mess up the chain of events that he's brought on himself. Jam a wrench in the gears of his depression, Lord. Lord, put a stick in the spokes of his anger. Like, interject yourself in the mess. Dude, this is prayer. Here's the thing about prayer. I think there are things God wants to do in our community, but he's saying, who will go for me? Who will be the conduit that I can show my people that I have intervened in Jesus and today long to intervene by the power of the Holy Spirit? And dude, what's the primary metaphor of the church? Body of Christ. What's that mean? It may mean that God longs to interfere in the consequences of sin in the earth through us. Tracking? It may mean that he longs that we are the kind of people who will jam ourselves in the spokes and stop the consequences of sin and let someone else's consequences of sin fall on us. Who does that sound like? Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I think sometimes we ask God to intervene because we don't want to. I think that's a safe, for me, that's really safe a lot of times. I'm like, man, they are messed up. Lord, help them. Right? I think sometimes, God, when we pray, I think we pray it out of laziness sometimes. Intervene. Intervene, Lord, do something because you don't want to. What if the answer to the prayer that you're asking is you? What if God's Holy Spirit and healing power and revival being poured out on you right now, like some of us are jacked up on revival, cool. What if that revival that he's pouring out on you is so that you go out and begin to be represent Jesus to the world. You know what that looks like? The prosperity gospel? It doesn't. Mm -mm. We are a bit naive if we think that we can get by following a man who suffered and died without suffering ourselves. You ever heard Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer took this to heart in World War II. And what he said was, jammed a spoke into the wheel of the Third Reich and lost his life doing it. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think sometimes we ask God to interfere because we just don't want to mess with it ourselves, right? And God sometimes says, I want to do it through you, actually. Okay, so let me land the plane. This is what I know about prayer. The one thing the enemy wants is for you to avoid any real interactions with God. Could be the one thing he wants more than anything else, just... Keep them away from the Spirit. Keep them away from the Father. He wants you as far away as prayer as possible. So he's going to try to make it look boring. He's going to try to make it feel irrelevant. Or he's going to try to make you think that God doesn't care about your prayers because he's always made up his mind anyway. Or he'll just distract you with 24-hour, 24-7 mindless social media. And if that doesn't work, the enemy, he'll do the thing that got him his title, the accuser. If none of those distractions work, he will say, you're a failure. Remember that thing you did 20 years ago? You think God listens to people like you? Remember that thing you did last week? He will hold up your imperfections and shame and guilt and anger and say, you did this. God doesn't listen to people like you. He will build a cement wall in between you and God, and he'll say, look at you. 
You can't come to God. You're filthy. You're ruined. You're less than human because of the choices you've made. And do you know what Jesus would say to that? The Holy Spirit might say, you know what? You have sinned. You have ruined things in your pride and arrogance. Now bring it to me. You know what Jesus says to that? Come to me. You know what he says? When he sees the wall of shame and guilt and the 20 years of blowing it over and over again, he says, bring it all in. Bring it in. All of it. See, we think that we got to get ourselves all prettied up to come to God, right? We need to pray, Father in heaven, and we pray with his name. And God wants to say, dude, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sin, all the anger, bring it in. What do you think it means when he says, come to me, you who are burdened and weary? See, we, we try to fix ourselves before we come to God. The whole point is that we don't have to. The whole point of prayer is that we can bring everything before God, all the mess. Let me tell you what it looks like. Man, I, I try to pray every day. Try to pray every day, right? Get up in the morning. I sit down. I start praying. And I'm and like, you know, I'm going, Lord, I pray for this. I pray for that. And I pray for this guy. and pray for that guy. And I'm like, look at that bird. <laughs> what kind of bird is that? <laughs> I've never seen this. What kind of bird is that? You know? Oh, yeah, that's right. Father, yeah. So, Lord, I'm just going to pray that. Can Jesus, you know, help, help with that? And God, I'm really stressed about this. Oh, man, I'm so stressed about that. Man, Father, I blew it with my kids. She have mercy on me. God, I need to paint the ceiling. <laughs> oh, I think I got to order those things. And you know, you know why it works? Because my Father loves me. And I don't have to rebuke myself and my meandering ADD, mercy me, mind wanders all over the place. I just gently bring it back to the Father. You just pray what you got. One pastor, just pray what you got, man. Pray what you got. And if you got sin and shame and guilt, pray it. If you're angry at him, pray it. The whole point is God saying, bring it to me. Don't let it cause you to run from me. Come to me. I love you. Like we just have this burden and shame and fear and anxiety on us that causes us to run as far as we can away from the God. And you see, the whole point of all those things is it crowds you to Christ. That's prayer, y'all bringing everything, the reality of who you are to God right now. So we'd be remiss if we didn't practice this ourselves. Let's do it. Let's pray together.